Women on Screen Out Loud is proudly supported by Deluxe Toronto. Deluxe is the leading post-production and visual effects provider to the world's top content creators. This episode is proudly presented by the Directors Guild of Canada in Ontario. DGC Ontario, creativity lives here. Welcome to Women On Screen Out Loud, giving a platform to women in the film industry who challenge, motivate, and inspire on all sides of the camera. We are your hosts, Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue. In order to wear multiple professional hats, we often have to explore multiple life experiences. In her piece, Apricots, showrunner, writer, director, and actor Stephanie Morgenstern investigates themes such as gender dynamics, power struggles, military self-defense and fighting techniques, as well as multiple uses for fruit, and relates these to her work in the film and TV landscape. The sky is huge horizon to horizon. There's no shelter from the mid-August sun. The day's just beginning, and my uniform is already sweat-plastered to my back. My unit and I jog across a massive field edged by trees, eyes scanning, single file, muzzle down, finger flat on the trigger guard. There's a chopper rising somewhere behind us, heavy blades slicing the air. Not our business what it's up to. We gotta stay on task. Here's my dilemma. I don't know how much truth to tell here. Because I want to be truthful, but sometimes I'm also expected to be inspirational, or at least interesting, which I'm not convinced I naturally am. Hence this story, which I call Apricots. It's a true story. It's from last summer. But it's also strategically misleading. Rifles up. We lift them high, horizontal, keeping the pace. Left, right, left, right. Our leader, this petite, intimidating, red-headed torpedo of a woman, motions us to the top of a small slope. Backwards roll into firing position. Do not let your weapon touch the grass. Go! We line up. We execute the command. Then back to jogging. Single file along the far edge of the field. My back aches. I back rolled over a stone. Doesn't matter. Keep going. She says, the bad guy doesn't care. So I've worn a few different hats in the workplace, and when I get invited to share stories about those hats and how I came to wear them, I never know how much to redact. Because alongside the list of official achievements, I could also easily list the top 20 roles I wish I'd landed, grants that didn't go my way, schools I didn't get into, projects that went nowhere. That all happened, too. It still happens. I roll with it, shake it off, stumble on. Bad guy doesn't care. Me and my squad, scattered through the orchard. Our mission? Liberate the prime minister who's being held captive in that farmhouse. Our leader paces by the door on sentry, flat on our bellies, crouching behind leaf cover, sprinting between apricot trees, signaling, covering. We advance, full stealth. If she sees you, whistle blows. You're back to the far end of the orchard. Start again. You don't want to be that guy. You don't want to be the weak link. I'm learning how strong my resolve can be, especially as the only female. When my failure could bring the whole team down. Again and again, during these long days of training, I'm thinking, I can't do this. There is no way. Again and again, it turns out I'm wrong. Because this isn't about me. This is bigger than me. This is for my guys. This is for my mission. That's what makes me stronger than I knew I was. That 
and maybe my feminine pride. In women-oriented industry gatherings, I noticed that alongside the success stories, we're also pretty ready to open up about our vulnerabilities, our insecurities, our imposter syndrome. But in a regular workplace setting where we're often outnumbered, that's way less likely to happen. We have to be protective. We can't afford to let our natural humility or playful self-deprecation inspire any further public doubt about our fitness for duty. Beyond the male-female thing, the brutal truth is that although we Canadian film and TV people are colleagues, comrades, a community, we are also sometimes each other's competition. We all fight fiercely for permission to work, to do what we love, even when what we love doesn't love us back. There aren't enough jobs for all of us. There never will be. We all stumble. We all fall hard. Behind a closed door, we all break. Lunch break, exhausted but not going to show it. We make an entry at the food court by the highway. The glass doors slide open and here we are, heads high, shoulders wide, matching uniforms, feeling all slow-mo and badass, unstoppable. I mean, it's just lunch, but still, if anyone wanted to stop us from having lunch, we'd be all, bring it, and we'd totally disarm them of their disposable plastic knives. This moment locks into my memory. I feel the eyes of strangers on us. Who are these sweaty, swaggering, self-assured individuals striding in like the place is already theirs? And I wonder, is this what not being female feels like? Or is it just belonging to something? So the truth then, who are we? We're not a paramilitary unit. Our American guest instructor is the real deal, but we're just a suburban Krav Maga club at a summer boot camp in scenic Prince Edward County. Our weapons are rubber replicas. And the chopper overhead was probably just spraying fertilizer on a nearby vineyard, but the apricots were real. Now, every time I look at an apricot, I remember when our leader went and picked two nice ripe ones, dropped them into the foot of a nylon stocking, and hung them off the front of her belt, crotch level, so we could all study how to make the most of masculine vulnerability. My comrades suddenly went very still. That was the one time in training when I felt grateful for being female. And I was grateful for her leadership, for her deadpan, mercy-free perspective on what it really means to have balls. I've been doing crab for about three and a half years, and I signed up for this particular boot camp. It was military, law enforcement, and street fighting techniques for research, with hopes of being better qualified for those hats I wear in the workplace, whether that's writing about the warrior mind or just working with confidence alongside alpha males on set. But there was this unexpected side effect to all this training. It forced me out of my overthinking head and into my body, my sweat, my muscles, my reflexes, and into a seductive world of radical ethical simplicity. There's us, and there's the bad guys. I have felt the pure, primal solidarity that comes from knowing you're right, from not letting shades of gray get in the way of getting the job done. The frame of mind that literally made me stronger than I knew I was. You don't sit around debating your mission. You don't get distracted by compassion for your counterpart, who's playing by their own reverse image black and white rule book. Hell no. Someone asks for it, you kick their ass. Boom. Fist bumps. High fives. Sometimes I envy that clarity of purpose. I know that belief gives you a power, like a placebo gives you healing. But in my real life, I don't know who the bad guy is. 
And self-doubt is a part of my fabric. It keeps me insecure, which keeps me humble, which keeps me learning. So if anyone looks to me with high expectations, where does that leave me? I think of the wide open sky, the hot sun, the grassy field, the apricots. And I remember, there's more than one way to be strong. Coming up, Lara Jean Korostecki and Stephanie Morgenstern discuss how personal and professional experiences have helped shape how Stephanie wears each of her many hats. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, hello, I'm Lara Jean Korostecki. I'm here with Stephanie Morgenstern at Deluxe Post Toronto. And we were just laughing about talking about actually my first question for you, which is <laughs> for those who are listening and don't know, what is Krav Maga, and how did you find this physical discipline? And, of course, you mentioned it began as research three years ago, but now it's kind of progressed. So what is this thing? Well, Krav Maga uh, literally means contact combat. Um, it was originated in the 1930s. Um, it's been developed mostly in Israel. The Israeli Defense Forces have developed it um, in a very advanced way. But it has sort of spread worldwide, and basically— <sighs> For purists, you wouldn't call it martial arts because martial arts implies it's a sport, it's competitive, it's between two equal parties, and it's in controlled circumstances. This is all about fighting skills for the real world. Okay. So you could be barehanded against someone with a knife or a you know, firearm or something like that. So it's basically dirty fighting, techniques of dirty fighting, how to get out of bad situations. But mostly the rule is you don't start a fight, you end it. Okay. And if you're doing your technique correctly, the fight, quote-unquote, the incident is over within about seven seconds, and you're running away. Okay. So there's no, there's no loss of face in running away. You deal with the conflict, and you run away. So, I mean, it has some badass qualities to it because there are no rules, but um, it's not about starting a fight. It's not about provoking. It's not about showing off. It's about ending the violence, mm -hmm. keeping yourself safe and anyone you care about safe, and getting out of there. And who introduced you to it? Well, I, I first came across it through uh, Torben Liebrecht, who was our bad guy in X Company, yeah. <laughs> quote-unquote bad guy. Um, he is a very advanced practitioner. I forget what level he's at, G-something. Um, so I'd heard about it through him. Um, and then it just kind of kept popping up. It's an odd word. So when you hear it, you start to notice it. And I just, I was intrigued. I thought it sounded super scary. And then uh, my daughter Lucy and I were looking for some kind of, I don't know, some sporty thing to do. We thought maybe martial arts, and it turns out there is a Krav Maga club in Oakville. And we looked it up, and we were super intimidated, and we went in, and she stayed by my side for the first three years, and she's as advanced as I am, except she had to... Lucy does it. Lucy, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so it's an awesome thing for um, a young woman. She was, you know, 15, 16, and now yeah. she's a little older, but it gives you a great sense of confidence and knowing where the weak points are in a man. That's really cool. Uh, you mentioned Torbrin, which I just want to say for our listeners. Yeah, we've known each other for a while. We've yeah. done a few projects together. And it's it's really a, a pleasure to collaborate with you in this way now. It's always been such a pleasure to be guided by your vision and discover more about your process and who you are. So as a showrunner, as a director, as a mentor, as all these different hats that you don as a leader, uh, Jen and I, when we were thinking about this Krav stuff, we, we were interested in asking you, did being boss around in this extracurricular activity was was that freeing in any way to you what did, what did that kind of unlock 
It absolutely did. It's so funny you you spotted that right away. <laughs> um, yes, submitting your will to the will of the group or the will of a leader. Yeah, mm. there is something very liberating about that. There's also something liberating. I don't know how this is going to sound, but when I'm among people of our community, sometimes um, it takes a while for someone to connect who I am, and sometimes that makes a difference to how they treat me. I see the gear shift, um, especially if, hypothetically, I'm in a position to be an employer. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely, privileged position to be in, but it's also awkward because it puts a filter between me and almost everyone I know. So to be in this suburban Krav Maga club. They have no clue who I am, and I love it. Not Because they accept one of them who's a paramedic who sort of made the connection to Flashpoint and kind of uh. freaked out. So that was fun. But I am among equals, except some are way stronger than me. I am among people who are not as strong as me physically but are getting there. There is something so... Um, I can't... It, it's very democratic. It's very physical. It's it's you against yourself. Um Yes, there is something very liberating about not being the boss. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is is there like moments of clarity? Because you talked about being able to get out of your head and into your body. Does that give you clarity as well that you can then take into your life? Y yes, it does. Because if you're working on a move, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again. Whether you succeed or fail is a matter of fact and of performance. Mm. And that kind of metric doesn't apply to anything creative that I do. It's always a matter of of whim or of opinion or of taste. Like, is this script good enough? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Do we work on it another week or do we let it go? Is it actually strong? Are, are we starting to question ourselves and overthink and make it not as pure as it should be? Everything I do that's creative or artistic, it's very hard to measure progress. Subjective. Absolutely. Yeah. And in Krav, you don't pass your level until you can execute all those moves to the satisfaction of your instructor. So there's an objectiveness that's almost freeing about it. Absolutely, yeah. Which you also talked about this um, this concept of the us versus them as a means to inspire action, which was, it was really interesting to read it because I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm just such a gray area individual. But anyway, to get back to it, uh, what what it means to look at something through a black and white versus shades of gray lens. And we'd love to talk about that more in depth, like this idea that there's more than one way to be strong, that we don't actually have to dismiss, let's say, the Krav Maga uh, objectivity um, and say that's the only way to approach life. We can still embrace the subjectivity. And uh, you've had a wealth of experience in this industry and you've, you've worn, as I was talking about a few minutes ago, so many different hats and we're curious, have you had to shift your view and method in attacking each project? Like some projects are more objective, some are more subjective, or have you kind of settled into some consistencies in how you approach your work, whatever the medium, whether you are the showrunner and the bossy boss, or whether you're the director and collaborating with the producers? And um, I think the main shift of gear is between has been between uh, show running and being a director. Mm. Um, at, both are massively collaborative, and everything is about you and your team and not wanting to let your team down. That is all in full effect. But as a director, which I didn't start doing until we uh, ended um, X Company, mm -hmm. um, you, you exist to serve. Um, and so whether or not it's a matter of taste, if you direct a scene in a certain way or if you want to heighten a performance in a certain way, that can be a matter of taste, that can be subjective. But what is objective is that it's not up to you, it's up to 
it's up to the showrunner of that show. You serve them. Mm. You serve their vision. You serve their story. If you feel strongly that this would be better done in a different way and if for any reason that there's um, an impasse between your vision and their vision, you yield. Mm. And that was new to me because I don't, I, I debate, I negotiate, I compromise. Uh, yielding is something that I've had to do as a director, which I do willingly. Mm -hmm. In fact, that too, you, it's funny, you've put your finger on it. <laughs> there is some liberation in that. Mm. Um, I'm very invested. I give myself a thousand percent to that show while I'm on it. But there's, there's a limit to that. When I'm done, I walk away. I've done my best. I'm as, invest as invested as I can be. But ultimately, I serve them. Mm. So that it's, yeah, it's funny you spotted that right away. It's, it's an interesting, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a ACAM operator and asking him, like, well, what do you love about your job? And, and he was saying similarly, he was like, you know, sometimes I look at things and, and I go, oh, I wish it could go this way or maybe I'll throw in a suggestion. He's like, but ultimately, I just kind of love being a part of the process mm -hmm. and feeling what it is at times to not be the DOP, he DOP'd on commercials years ago, to not be the DOP, to be a, a part of this whole machine and really almost in a theater way serve. Yeah. Serve the machine and serve, would you say, the greater good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to pivot a bit here because I want to talk about that phrase that that this wonderful pint, pint size, is she pint size redhead like me? <laughs> She's exactly our size. Amazing. <laughs> in uh, fact, yes, if I were to do... A drama about our club. You would totally be playing her. Sign me up. I will be there. I will learn all the crav. Uh, so this, this phrase that she said, this bad guys don't care. Bad guy doesn't care. Bad guy doesn't care. Really stuck out to us. It's like this idea that sometimes in difficult power games, like it doesn't matter how many failures we've had because no one wants to hear how you've been hurt. They just want to hear how you've succeeded. And yet, then it, you mention this bad guys don't care, and then you get to the end of the essay and you talk about the power in vulnerability, which we love. We've had so many guests this season talk about the power of compassion and vulnerability. And have you found a way, because I know you do great mentorship where we run in some of the same circles where we get together as a community of women, mm -hmm. and, and I've met some, met some of your mentees at times, and... Um, have you found a way to navigate talking about your struggles and successes in equal, truthful measure? Uh, or is that still a struggle for you? It's um, In a private setting, I have no trouble at all talking about my failure. If it's for, for having a, a dinner among people mm. or if it's, like I say, if it's sort of women only, I have no trouble talking about the time I felt humiliated by a bad choice I made or by something someone else did or... Because that's that's person to person. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, when there's a mic in front of me and when what I'm saying becomes part of a public document, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel protective. Um, but no, person to person among, among mentees, whether male or female, um, I think that my alleged successes are documented. What is not known is the stumbling obstacle course that took me there, the mistakes, the judgment, the... Every, like every time I rolled over a rock. Yeah. Um, Self-doubt is part of your fabric. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it serves any of us to have the kind of brazen self-confidence that becomes arrogance. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult 
choice to make when you're in a leadership position and people look to you for certainty. How much doubt can you express when 50 people are looking at you on a set? Mm -hmm. That's a split-second decision you have to make to say, we're going to do that one more time, or that's great, we're moving on, or... I have, no, I have no trouble being vulnerable one-on-one at all mm-hmm. because I think if I were in the position of someone taking my earlier steps in my path, it would be very comforting to me to know that th- this person with all of these official achievements has also had these disappointments that I'm very familiar with. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes uh, success, however that is defined, feel accessible and possible. Uh, that's beautiful. You wrote, um, we all fight fiercely for permission to work, no matter kind of how successful we are, and and to do what we love, even when what we love doesn't love us back. Uh, it's a statement, it really spoke to my heart. It speaks <laughs> to the artist's life. I was talking to an actor friend recently who was saying that we really are in an abusive relationship as actors. Like, <laughs> our relationship with the business is completely abusive, even when we're objectively successful. I yeah. love that question when people come up to me and go, oh, you're so busy. And I go, am I? <laughs> yeah. Am I? I mean, I am. Busy. Yeah. I mean, I pay my I, I pay my mortgage, I pay my bills, but am I? Um, so even when we're objectively successful, there's such a good degree of self-criticism or outward criticism, judgment, rejection, etc. It's always provisional. It's always, yes. you're okay for now. You're doing okay for now. Yeah. Now people will judge you to this standard. Let's see how we fail. <laughs> yeah. Is there, so I'm curious, this, this thing that we all desperately want an equality of love with, have you found peace in this relationship? And if you have, <laughs> Stephanie Morgenstern, tell me. How, how is it done? <laughs> um, it's funny. You're uh, Maybe I'm just a very romantic person. <laughs> when, <laughs> when Mark Ellis proposed to me. Yeah. <laughs> who, he was my, he's my husband. He's my writing partner. He's by my side through almost all, except for the directing. He's, you know, my partner in all major creative things. Um. The decision that I made to say yes was not about, do I know for sure this will be forever, like until the day we die, the one love. The w-. It isn't that. We know that there is a very rocky journey ahead. There will be turbulent waters. The question isn't, will it be perfect? The question is, who do you want to navigate the imperfections with? Mm. And it's so funny, I haven't thought about this at all, <laughs> as a connection at all, but in that sometimes unrequited romance we have with the work we do, is it worth the turbulent imperfections? And if you're ready to, like, brace yourself on the side of that boat and brave the storm, and if even then in the middle of that you can say, there's nowhere I'd rather be, then that's a yes. Hmm. That same actor I was talking to said something very similar to me as I asked her that question. I, actually, she probably wouldn't mind me saying her name is Joe Boland, wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. And her husband is Dylan Trowbridge. They're both actors. And she said that she and Dylan just looked at each other and went, nope, we're in it. Yeah. Not only as partners, but as uh, as actors. This is just, this is what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to have peace with that. You got to, yeah, can you hold on to it? If you line up all the rational factors and make a checklist of plus and minus, that's just not how that decision is made. Yeah. That's not going to apply when you're in the middle of the storm and you're being thrown around and no. It's yeah. it's about suffering is a given. Turbulence is a given. Who do you want by your side to face that? Mm-hmm. Um and are you willing even though that this is getting to be a really extended ridiculous metaphor, <laughs> but even when the shore <laughs> you can barely see it through all the wind and 
if even if in the middle of that, you wouldn't just kind of step off board and say, I'd rather be doing this. If in the middle of that, you are still committed and passionate and you know you'll get you'll get through this somehow, then there's no other choice you can make. Is is that kind of what you're speaking to right now? A bit of what drove you being a showrunner? Man, it's so ambitious and wonderful. And, and to, you know, Flashpoint was so successful, X Company, so successful, well-regarded. Like, so what drove you and Mark as, as your writing partner there to go, no, we're just, we're going to, we're going to do the big guns. We're going <laughs> to do the big guns. We're going to run a show. There was never, this might sound funny, there was never a master plan to think big and be ambitious and think beyond the, it, there, there was never it never began that way it began so so simply it began as here's a story we want to tell there's this guy who's burdened by the gift of perfect memory we want to put him in the most difficult position conceivable which is in the midst of wartime how would this fragile human fare as as a spy. And this was our first short film. This was Remembrance. Yes, I remember watching it. It's, yeah. it's a wonderful film. Oh, thank Is you. it available somewhere for people to watch? Yeah. It's on my website if you want to look. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie's website. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, there, there, none of this was about we're going to conquer the world and become, there was none of that. It was just pure, pure, pure. I love the, the intersection of this impossible thing, this gift, this curse, and wartime. And Canada, Camp X. Like, who knew that we were the original place for training covert operatives to send, you know, overseas behind enemy lines? Like, that is just so cool. So untold stories, an angle no one has seen. We wanted to tell the story. Mark was going to be our Alfred, and I was the Aurora. And we just did it. We teamed up with Paula Fleck, who was our producer. We got a um, got a grant from uh, the OFDC at the time, which was, you can tell how long ago that was, <laughs> Ontario Film Development Corporation. Um, we made a calling card film and that set us in motion. It was it took us by surprise. It was successful. We were so thrilled. One thing led to another from that. That's what got us in a position to get literary agents, directing mm-hmm. agents. That's what got us in a position to pitch things to CTV. Um, That's what gave us the credibility to take one step at a time. And Flashpoint itself was an extremely rough, an extremely rough apprenticeship. But we learned so much being thrown into the fire in those five years that we came out on the other side. Speaking of turbulence, we came out stronger and with skills we didn't know we had. And it turned out we're showrunners. We have learned a vocabulary we didn't even know five years ago. So there was no master plan. It was just following an impulse of a story that we wanted to tell and wanted to see it through. I love, uh, can I just reflect back, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is such a wonderful drive to curiosity of human spirit, curiosity of human stories. Uh, you are an artist. <laughs> That's what I'm Thank hearing. You. <laughs> it's like you're I just love I, I asked, you know, why do something ambitious as show running? And your response is so beautifully artistic about your just desire and need to tell stories. The the part of it that put us in a position of power after that was not the plan. The plan was all about stories, about working together, about gathering other people who believed in the same story that we did. Finding ourselves at the end of that road as showrunners was almost not an afterthought, but that was a side effect. Mm. 
it's a beautiful, beautiful journey that you've been on. I look forward to the Krav Maga movie, <laughs> film, TV show. I will Musical. play. What's her name? <laughs> What's her name? Paula. I will play Paula. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Those are some beautiful questions that really got me thinking. (laughs) Oh, good. Well, it's a beautiful essay, and that's where the questions came from. Stephanie Morgenstern's award-winning career spans many disciplines. Beginning as an actor, she branched out into filmmaking, screenwriting, directing, and show running. She was designated National Indie Treasure by Toronto's iMagazine, profiled in Montreal's Voir Magazine as New Face to Watch, and selected as one of three Great Expectations filmmakers at the Telluride International Film Festival. Her television and film credits include co-creating, writing, executive producing, and showrunning hit shows such as CBC's X Company and CTV's Flashpoint, and directing episodes for Killjoys, Nurses, Hudson and Rex, and much more to come. Thank you, Stephanie, for joining us today at Deluxe. Be sure to check out future episodes of Women on Screen Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts. And check out upcoming events and initiatives from Women on Screen at womenonscreen.ca. Until next time, I'm Lara Jean Korostecki. And I'm Jennifer Pogue. And we are Women Women on Screen. Women on Screen Out Loud was recorded at Deluxe Toronto. This podcast was created and produced by Lara Jean Korostecki and Jennifer Pogue, executive produced by Lauren McKinley, Farah Morani, and Kira Murphy, with original music by Erica Percunier. Thank you to Deluxe Toronto for hosting us and for continuing to support women on screen.